Good evening. The Middle East conflict boiled over today with four airplane hijackings and the Israeli government pull out from the Middle East peace talks. Arab guerrillas have claimed responsibility for the hijackings, including one that was aborted at London's Heathrow Airport. The popular front for the liberation of Palestine, to which today's coordinated series of hijackings are attributed, is a Marxist Palestinian splinter group. Its purpose was obviously to try to throw a larger monkey wrench into the movement toward peace in the Middle East than the guerrillas have been able to achieve on the battlefield itself. Charles Collingwood, CBS News, London. There were 148 passengers aboard the El Al plane and nearly 450 aboard the three other planes which were hijacked and diverted toward the Middle East. All the flights were headed toward New York when they were hijacked and three of the incidents occurred within a period of about an hour and a half. A TWA flight from Tel Aviv was hijacked shortly after takeoff from Frankfurt, and commando leaders say that it has landed at a revolutionary airport somewhere in Jordan. That was CBS News anchor Harry Reisner and London correspondent Charles Collingwood reporting on the hijacking of three international flights and the attempted hijacking of a fourth on September 6, 1970. That year, hijackings were shockingly common. While piracy is a centuries-old crime, aircraft hijacking is a relatively recent one. The first hijacking probably occurred in 1929, when revolutionaries in Arequipa, Peru, ordered an American pilot to fly them to Lima, the capital, where an insurrection was taking place. But there were fewer than two dozen hijackings before World War II, in part because commercial air travel was so rare. But the post-1945 world left millions of people stranded in countries undergoing the re-imposition of colonial regimes behind Europe's Iron Curtain and as ideological minorities in a politically bipolar Cold War world. Airline hijackings tended to be political from the get-go, and they nearly always involved hostage-taking to ensure the physical safety of the hijackers and, increasingly, As television broadcast images and sound across great distances, they drew global attention to a political cause. While airlines counseled flight crews to obey hijackers in the interests of passenger safety, these policies also meant that a plane load of civilians became an easy pool of hostages, bargaining chips that compelled governments to negotiate air pirates' demands. Those of us who flew regularly in the politically turbulent 1960s were very aware of the relative frequency of hijacking. It was a crime that escalated sharply by the end of the decade as, among other things, resistance to United States imperialism and the suppression of colonized people around the world became violent. There were around 100 hijacking attempts, 40 successful in the 1960s. But between 1968 and 1972, there were 326 of these events around the world. 90 hijackers demanded transportation to Cuba, a communist safe haven which could easily be reached from North America without refueling. In 1970 alone, more than 7,000 passengers were taken hostage around the globe. And the risk of harm, while minimal, was ever-present for passengers conscripted into a world political narrative. 96 people were killed and 56 injured as armed terrorists took charge of flights originating in almost 50 different countries. In the United States, the Federal Aviation Administration enhanced penalties for hijacking, began to put plainclothes federal marshals on many flights in the 1960s, and big airport screenings that have become so rigorous today. But the crime didn't go away completely. 
In 2001, there were only five hijackings, but they were deadlier than all previous incidents combined. On September 11th of that year, two of those planes were deliberately crashed into the twin towers of the World Trade Center, one into the Pentagon in Washington, D.C., and a fourth went down in Pennsylvania when passengers fought the hijackers for control of the flight. On that day, New York University history professor Martha Hodes was headed to her 9.30 class on the first day of the fall semester when she heard a boom, pausing briefly to see smoke pouring from the North Tower of the World Trade Center and, as she recalls it, an orange bowl of fire bursting through the South Tower. Yet she had a class to meet, and she met it. An hour later, the class ended, notified that the towers had fallen. As she puts it, Hodes and her students emerged into a world transformed. Most of us who experienced 9-11 were shattered by it. Our worlds upended. I still remember watching the towers crumble, knowing in my heart that our neighborhood ladder company, men who shopped for the firehouse in the local key food, were inside and were not coming home again. But Hodes had a different experience. She began to be troubled by memories, because she too had been on a hijacked plane on September 6, 1970. TWA Flight 741 seized after takeoff from Tel Aviv, Israel, by members of the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, was diverted to that old airstrip near Amman, Jordan. She was 12 at the time, traveling with her older sister Catherine, but unaccompanied by an adult family member. She spent a week on the plane, toggling between boredom, new alliances with the other passengers, and writing in her diary. Those and more troubling memories began to surface. How could she be sure what had happened? What was the status of these new conflicting memories? Had she been afraid? Historians rely on diaries and on the memories of living people when we reconstruct events. But as Hodes began to reread her childhood account of this harrowing week, she realized that her diary concealed as much as it illuminated. So she did what any upstanding scholar would do in a similar situation. Research. I'll let Martha tell her own story, as she has in her new book, My Hijacking, A Personal History of Remembering and Forgetting. But let me begin by saying the book does its work. Spinning backwards in time, sifting Hodes' memories to find the truth of her experience, My Hijacking reminds us that not just our past selves, but the people we write about, sometimes evade us by refashioning the past into a story they can live with. Yet they beckon us to find them. Even as they artfully conceal themselves, they have their reasons. Join Martha and me for this episode of Why Now, where history and politics meet the challenge of today. And I'm your host, Claire Potter, a professor of history at the New School for Social Research, a contributing editor at Public Seminar, and the author of the Political Junkie Substack. This is episode 26, Lost and Found. your book, My Hijacking, the title even says this is an attempt to own an experience that you had. And I wonder if you could just start us off by giving our listeners a sense of the story you're telling in this book. So when I was 12 years old, I 
was caught in a world historical event. My family and I were caught in a world historical event. My sister and I were traveling by ourselves. My sister is a year and a half older than I am. So she was 13. I was 12. And we were traveling by ourselves, coming home from spending a summer in Israel. And our flight was hijacked by the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine. And we landed in the Jordan Desert. And we were held hostage inside the plane for a week. And there were also two other planes hijacked that sat next to us in the desert. Let me tell you two things that really struck me about this book. One is that you were on the plane with your older sister and you were both very young, but you kind of mentioned throughout that you had faith in your sister to handle everything. And that really touched me because I'm an older sister and I thought that's what I would have done too. I would have been just like Martha's sister. But can you can you speak a little bit to your sister's role in this event and how she protected you. I love what you said about being an older sister. And I will say something about that in a moment. My hijacking is, and I'm very clear about this in the book, my story. It's certainly not the story of the other hostages or my captors. And I say, it's also not my sister's story. Although she was incredibly supportive and read the manuscript and and answered so many questions and helped me out in so many ways. But what's so interesting about what you just said, Claire, to me, she was my protector. I turned to her for everything, make sure we wouldn't get separated, talk to the press when we were released, find us a hotel room that night we were released, everything, answer the questions our captors asked us when we landed. But what's so interesting is that I think for her, and I can't really speak for her, but I think for her, it's a lot like what you just said, Claire. It was just her instinct. Of course, she would do that. She didn't feel like a hero, but that was my experience of her. And it's so interesting that we have such different experiences. So she doesn't cast herself in that role. She really doesn't. But for me, that's who she was. And it meant that the two of you had very different memories of the event, too. And since this book is about memory, Can you talk about the difference in your memories without speaking for your sister, speaking only for yourself? Thank you. And thank you so much for saying that. But I think I can say a little bit about that. You know, one of the effects of having my sister there to take care of me, from my point of view, was that I didn't have to absorb everything that was going on around me. And so a lot of the book is about forgetting. I didn't want to absorb what was happening, and I was determined to forget. And I did. Because my sister was in charge of us, whether it was instinctive or because she's a hero, she really had to pay attention. And she, at the time, she understood a lot more about what was going on. She remembered a lot more about what was going on. And now, 50 years later, when I was writing the book, it was my quest to remember The subtitle of the book is A Personal History of Forgetting and Remembering. And again, I can't speak for her, but my sense is she remembered so much way back then that she was more interested in forgetting as she grew older. So we had opposite roles, and I suppose they're complementary, but really different experiences. And you actually focus very much on how much you wanted to protect your father who I know just a little bit, and it's a 
tremendously admirable person, a dancer named Stuart Hodes. But you were also focused on his anxiety and whether he would be sad and whether he would be afraid. And that's an awful lot for a little girl to carry around with her, isn't it? Absolutely. It was such a funny time, Claire, when we think back now from the perspective of 2023. The wisdom in those days was when we came home, don't talk about it. It would just upset us. We're home. Everything's fine. Now, there were hostages families that didn't abide by that contemporary wisdom. There were hostages families, and I talked to some of these fellow hostages. The families made a point to talk about it. But there were also many hostages families where there were children, where the parents didn't want the children to talk about it, told teachers not to bring it up, hid the newspapers from them. It wasn't uncommon. And I think it was just a sense of protecting everybody. And I had a sense that it was so hard on my father when we were there that why talk about it when we came home? And I do believe that, you know, I have some evidence and I will leave this as a gift to the reader. My sister was more eager to talk about it when we came home. And what I talk about in the book is that my father and I, this is a funny word, but in a way colluded not to. In a way, we were both more interested in just going forward, moving forward, not thinking about it. And then, of course, it caught up with me. As things tend to do. Now, I want to roll us back to that historical period, a very recent past. I spend a lot of time in the recent past. You, Martha, spend a lot more time in the far past. But I must have seen that plane on the tarmac and not known. There is my future friend, Martha Hodes, (laughs) on that airplane. But I was very aware of hijackings. And it was because I flew at least once a year to see my grandparents for the summer in Idaho. And when hijacking started to happen, I became very aware that one had to prepare for them. So I always had a little knapsack that had extra snacks in it. And what I was really focused on was having enough to read, that if I didn't have enough to read, this could go on for a long time. But like you, I thought of hijackings as somebody takes the plane to Cuba because that was mostly what happened. So had you imagined when you were a child and you're making this quite arduous journey between your parents, one in Israel and one in New York, your mother's in Israel, your father's in New York, did you feel endangered at all when you got on that plane? The answer is no. And I'll say a little more about that. First, I just want to say for our listeners, when you say that my my historical work is in the far past, I'm a historian of the 19th century and the Civil War. So that's what Claire was referring to. Um, And also, I just want to explain that my mother lived in Israel because she, both of my parents were modern dancers. They danced with Martha Graham. And my mother had been invited to Israel to help start the Batsheva Dance Company, which is the modern dance company of Israel. Did I ever think about this? Absolutely not. And I'm quite sure that I'm not just forgetting this. Of course, I read about Cuba hijackings, but one of the things that's so fascinating, and I found this in researching those hijackings, was that people treated them kind of like a joke. Like there was a Monty Python skit about being hijacked to Cuba. Fidel Castro joked about hijacking to Cuba. And when the hijacking started in the air, Many of the passengers thought, oh, we're going to Cuba. We'll have some cigars and be sent home. Many of the grown-ups and the kids thought, oh, great, 
we'll go to Cuba, but we'll miss the first day of school because we were coming back just before Labor Day. I don't remember thinking any of that, but boy, did I not pack my bag with the thought that I would be detained anywhere. And what is so interesting, and I had never made this connection before, but my adult life as a historian traveling to conferences and going to lectures, I am utterly maniacal about packing reading material. And I wonder if it is now because of the hijacking. And before we had online books, I would pack six books for a weekend, which is crazy. I would carry them in my backpack or in my suitcase. So one of the things that happened on the plane was people were so bored. And it was so fascinating to talk to past hostages or former hostages or to read their accounts. The most interesting answer that people gave when I said, what did we do all day was nothing, nothing. People just said nothing. We did nothing. Now, I did dig into people's accounts and people's memories and, and contemporary accounts. People did read. We traded books and magazines, played cards, sang songs. But it was so much time with so little to do. Really, there are a number of other things that you didn't really understand were connected to the hijacking that you could get on planes, but you actually would say to people, I reserve the right to get off the plane if I need to. Or when the plane landed and people applauded, that was sort of a trigger to the time that you returned to New York and the entire plane load of people applauded. But at what point, Martha, did you acquire the courage to say, I need to interrogate my own personal history. I have spent enough time reconstructing other people's histories, and now I'm ready to do me. Yes. So the things you refer to are, are things that I tell the reader about some of the lasting effects. Saying to someone, I reserve the right to turn around on the tarmac was a, was a post 9-11 response. I do want to be very clear. There isn't a straight line between our hijacking and 9-11. Our hijackers were Marxist-Leninists. They were not Muslim jihadists. The founder of the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine was Christian. So there wasn't, it, it wasn't one line from you know, one to the other, and it's just an extreme version at all. However, 9-11 did very much trigger my sister and me, although it took me 15 more years after 9-11 to start writing the book. And you also referred to something else. Oh, yes, the applauding on the tarmac. When we ultimately came home, and by the way, everybody came home and no one died, and I say that early in the book. When we landed at Kennedy Airport, naturally, the passengers broke out in applause and it was a beautiful moment. And what you're talking about, Claire, is that ever since then, if passengers applaud, like if, if there's a, if the plane is delayed or something, you know, there's turbulence or it wasn't a pleasant flight and people applaud, it, it does set me off emotionally. So I do have those triggers to use that word loosely, but you asked at what point did I decide to go back? Such a good question. After 9-11, my sister and I talked about our hijacking for the first time, probably ever since we had gotten home. And then I didn't realize this till I began to think about it, how much longer it took me after that to think about writing the book. I began, after I finished my last book, which was about Lincoln's assassination, I began to think, wouldn't it be interesting to research what happened to us? And I went to some archives and I started to do some research. I wasn't thinking at all about a book, not at all. And then I had a very interesting experience where I was meeting with my literary agent 
at her office and she was asking me what I was thinking about writing next. And I didn't say that I was going to write this book, but I just told her about this research. And as I was speaking, her dog, who was resting at her feet, got up, trotted over to me and put his front paws on my knees and looked into my face. And I said to my agent, what's going on? And she said, oh, Farley can tell when someone's in distress. I couldn't tell that I was in distress talking about this, but the dog could. And I was willing to accept that the dog was picking up on something that I was not picking up on. And that was incredibly important to me and fascinating to me. And it made me think about the things that triggered me. And so I kept researching. My agent was very enthusiastic about making this a book. And I I have to say, I went along with it. And there are moments that I'm still ambivalent. I guess I'd say I'm so glad I researched the book and I'm so glad I wrote it. Publishing it feels a little scary because, as you said, I write about other people's lives and other people's adversity and grief and loss and not my own. I'm not a memoirist at heart. And it's been quite a journey for me. You know, and it's so interesting, Martha, because the thing we do for a living, being historians, requires lots of public appearances, and we have to be able to manage ourselves in public, even when we're under stress. And what I always would have said about you is Martha Hodes is such a poised person. And that poise seems now to me to be somewhat related to learning as a very young child how to manage emotions and be okay. And it, it's become an asset to you professionally. <laughs> well, would, would you say that there were other things that you learned? I mean, maybe I'm wrong about that, but would you say that there are things that you learned during this experience that were actually valuable? Um, I would love to address what you just said. It is so interesting to me, Claire. Parts of my research involved asking my friends what they remembered I had told them about the hijacking. I was entering seventh grade that fall, and I went back to my seventh grade friends, some of whom I am in touch with and others who I had gotten in touch with anew. And their impressions were so fascinating. First, the recollection that I didn't want to talk about the hijacking. One of my elementary school friends said that her main impression was, and I believe these are her words, no harm done, no lasting effect, which is exactly what I wanted my friends to think. I also spoke to friends of mine from high school, college, and beyond. And the the consensus was that I always talked about the hijacking, if at all, in a way that was very casual, dismissive, and detached, in a way that really puzzled my close friends. So I queried close friends, and they were the ones who were so surprised that I didn't speak about it more intimately or more deeply. And so what I learned from that, I mean, you put a lovely positive spin on it, Claire, but... I learned in a, in a way that I think my, my tone of detachment was a way to prove to them, but ultimately to myself, that the event did not have significance for me. And it's not true that it didn't. So in a way, my skills were a bad lesson for professional appearances. But it was also a lesson in denial and denial of my own feelings, One of the things I learned in writing the book was to have empathy for that 12-year-old girl who who was in many ways, you know, she was the historical actor. And she was me and she wasn't me. And that was so interesting to me. And I needed to learn to empathize with the fact that she couldn't absorb everything. And she needed to forget. And that's okay. 
because as a historian, of course, I found it so frustrating. And I'll just say this briefly. We can talk more about it if you'd like. But, you know, I kept a diary on the plane. I was a, a very consistent diary keeper from a young age. And I had my diary with me. I would never have gone anywhere without it. And I wrote every day I was on the plane. But there's so much I left out of it. And when I started my research, I thought, oh, my diary, that will be my trusted source. You know, historians prize diaries or, or prize diaries and prize any sources that date from the time and place we're writing about. But it was so deficient as a source. I left out my fears. I left out frightening things that happened. I just didn't want them on record. So back then as a 12-year-old, I was crafting the story in a way that was tolerable for me. Well, and you talk in the book about coming across parts of the diary where you actually scratch out a word or a sentence and you rewrite it. You re you revise, right? And, yes. you know, part of what you're saying here that's so fascinating to me is that as historians, we need to have empathy for the people we write about, but we can't be trapped by that empathy either. So we need to be both empathetic and detached. So that is something you were doing. Tell me, Martha, what else did you find among your memories that turned out not to be true? Well, I won't give everything away, but I did misremember a key event that I had carried with me up until the time I was deeply into my research. And it was, I'll just, I'll say, I'll say this. It was an announcement that the co-pilot made. He made the announcement after speaking with our captors. And I thought he had made the announcement the night we landed. And it was something that made me feel safe. And I learned through various sources that actually those words came much later. And what I realized, again, was my memories were revising the experience so that I could recast it as not frightening. And I just want to give our readers my favorite example of what I crossed out in my diary. It was so telling to me. I had written a sentence describing what was going on in midair when the hijacking began. And I wrote down the sentence, the hostesses, which is what we called flight attendants in those days, the hostesses comforted a crying Catherine and calmed everyone. Catherine is my sister. I crossed out the words, really crossed out like a big black lockout that I had to decipher. I crossed out the words, a crying Catherine. So the sentence read, the hostesses comforted and calmed everyone. And I did that because my sister's fear was too much for me to bear. And it, it's such a, I mean, you almost couldn't make up that example. It's, it's so blatant and so clear. And that's where I had to have empathy for that, that girl who was me and not me, that, that historical actor in the past. Of course. And let's also go back to the history here. This happens three years after the 67 war, and the situation in the Middle East remains volatile when you're on that plane. And yet you were able to experience Israel as what sounds to me like a truly beautiful and magical place, a place where you could be someone other than you were in New York. And yet when the hijacking happens, it becomes almost instantly clear that the people who are on the plane who are Jews are in special jeopardy. Yes. So let me, let me say a few things about that. One of the things I learned during my research, which I don't think I knew at the time, is that my sister and I were 
different kinds of visitors to Israel than the majority of American Jews on our plane. It was 1970, three years after the 67 war. Many American Jews who went to Israel in those days were Zionists. That word obviously has many different meanings. There were secular socialist Zionists. There were religious Zionists. Many people went to Israel to have their sons bar mitzvahed. People flocked to the West Bank. Um, They wanted to see the newly acquired territories, places like Hebron, places that were like Bethlehem that were important to Jews. My sister and I were incredibly secular Jews. We grew up in a family where our grandparents, you know, our grandparents whose families had come from Eastern Europe, celebrated Christmas and Easter. There was just nothing religious about our lives. We didn't go to Hebrew school. Girls didn't have bat mitzvahs in those days. We certainly didn't. I didn't have any brothers. If I had, he wouldn't have had a bar mitzvah. Um, My uncle described us as world-class non-practicing Jews. That was his phrase. Nor did my mother, who was going to Israel to start this dance company, have any interest in political issues. A dance historian described her as um, having no interest in Israel or Zionism, but rather only in dance. So all of that was very foreign to us. What Israel was to us was the place we spent summers with our mother. We had friends. We learned street Hebrew. We wandered around the city. It was a small, small little uh, kind of backwater in the 60s. It was also a cosmopolitan city, but we lived right in the center of town and it was safe. And we, you know, 12, 13, we went to parties with our friends. We stayed out late. We came home late. It was just, it was just fun. It was a fun place. We went to the beach. We loved the beach. Everybody in the Betsheva Dance Company adored us. We went to the studio. We played on the sets. It was, that was our experience of Israel. I didn't know. I didn't know the politics. I knew there had been a war. When we arrived in the summer of 67, my mother's windows were taped because of bomb scares. But I was a kid and it didn't compute. And so one of the things that happened on the plane was that I learned some of the history that I had never known before. Yeah. And your captors actually made a point of educating the people on the plane about why they were doing this thing and trying to teach people about their mission and saying to people, you know, go back and tell people, you need to tell people about us and why we're doing this. Did you take that message seriously at the time? It's such an interesting question because again, the responses of different hostages were so different. There were hostages who would, well, I should say the the crew counseled the passengers to simply listen and not engage in conversation as much as possible. There were passengers who listened, but when the commandos would walk away, would dispute what they were saying. So they really disagreed. And this, you know, this is really about the irreconcilable narratives of this history. So there were people who were not at all persuaded from what they knew and had learned. There were other American Jewish hostages and non-Jewish hostages as well, by the way, because there were both Jews and non-Jews were detained on the plane, who were interested in what they were hearing and expressed a measure of sympathy, but still were firmly in the camp of Israel. My sister and I, I mean, we were kids. We were young. We were interested in the cause. My sister 
was more politically astute than I was. And I feel like she understood a lot more than I did. But I think, you know, when we got home, we gave an interview that I have on tape, that I found on tape. And when I listened to that interview for the first time, one of the notes I jotted down was, I knew all this, question mark, because I was rehearsing some of the history that I'd heard. I think the best way to describe what I felt on the plane was I felt sorry for everybody. I felt sorry for the stories that our captors were telling us. They had been children during the 48 war. Their families had lost their homes. There were also Holocaust survivors on our plane who were terribly triggered, even if that's historically inaccurate, in that the Palestinians had nothing to do with the Holocaust or concentration camps. But I felt sorry for them too. They were extremely anxious and sad. And it, it was just, it was heartbreaking. I also feel like in this interview, especially when we got home, my sister and I, you know, we talked a little bit about the politics. And what I came away with listening to the tape was, it was like we wanted to, to think of a solution to the whole political problem of the Middle East. And we couldn't think of one. And that was upsetting to us as, as children. We, we wanted to be able to solve it. And it didn't seem like there was a way to do that. And of course, history has, has borne that out. Yeah, no, and and that is a kind of kid thing. I wonder if it's also a future historian thing. I wrote a lot in notebooks when I was a child, and there was one whole notebook that was filled up with my distress and desire to figure out why Bobby Kennedy was assassinated. And I think I was 10, but, you know, I had this idea that, you know, if I sort of activated myself as a detective, I could figure this out and then these terrible things wouldn't happen anymore. And so that kind of problem solving, I wonder in the first place, if it is common to people who grow up to be historians, but also ultimately it was a problem that couldn't be solved. And so that was a trauma too, right? That's really interesting, Claire. I do think, I mean, obviously, you know, my sister grew up to be an actress and then a social worker. She works with victims of domestic violence. So I think we have different trajectories, but I still think what you said about being a historian and trying to solve problems makes a lot of sense. Or that maybe, you know, when I started writing this book, a lot of people asked me, is this why you became a historian? And honestly, I had never thought of that before. I don't know the answer, but I think it probably played a part in my decision in a way that I had never considered before. Was that a trauma? to not be able to be presented with a fully adult problem with global ramifications that as a child, you're actually powerless in relation to? Beautiful, wonderful, illuminating question. And I, I think the answer has to be, has to be yes in some way. It was so disturbing to us to see people, of course, there was tension between There was both friendliness and tension between captors and captives, which is not unusual. But to see people in such distress on both sides and, you know, maybe as children of divorce, that was another thing. Um, My parents were divorced and lived in separate places. And maybe that was another mandate that I gave myself. You know, we have to solve these grown up problems so everything will be okay, And we couldn't. And there are a couple of times in the book before you reach the end, and, and we won't give that away to our listeners, but in which you say, why was I on that plane without my parents in the first place? 
Exactly. That's and right. that I that just struck me to the heart. Let me ask you another question, Martha. When you got back to New York, there was a researcher who came to interview you and your sister. How did you relate to someone doing research on the thing you had just experienced? Because we're talking about being historians here, that all of a sudden there's an answer that is planted here about how can you deal with these difficult problems? Research. So fascinating. The woman who came to talk to us was a fellow hostage. She had been on our plane. Her name was Sylvia Jacobson. She was a sociologist and she taught in Florida. She was a professor. Now that I look back, I see that she dealt with her traumatic experience by assuming it into her scholarly work. And she ultimately published an article that I drew on quite a bit in the book called something like Individual and Group Responses to Something or Other on a Skyjacked Plane. Anyway, it was published in a sociology journal, and she sent us a copy many years later. It took her a long time to write. And one of the first pieces of research I did was to find her papers at the American Jewish Archives in Cincinnati. Her, she's no longer alive. Her papers had been deposited there. And I found her research notes. And those research notes brought back to me that day that she had come and spoken to us. What is so fascinating is that my sister and my father and I vaguely remembered her, but we didn't have a very clear picture of everything that had happened. It was all so hazy to all of us. But I think when I think back, I think back to her research notes, I have her manuscripts, her handwritten revisions, her theories, sociological theories of how people coped on the plane. In a way, I saw, it's kind of meta, you know, I saw in her notes, her theories, her revisions, her final drafts, her drafts that were published. It was almost an image of myself doing the same thing, but from a different perspective. What was so interesting about Sylvia Jacobson is that she was what sociologists would call a participant observer. She was a hostage and she was doing the research on it. And that, of course, was true for me as well. I'm a historian and I was doing the research on it. I'll just say one last thing about a difference. She began that research as soon as she came home. I began my research half century later. And so my sense, and I'm so sad that she's no longer alive and I couldn't talk to her. She was someone I would have loved to speak with. My sense of the feeling that that 12-year-old girl was different from a grown-up historian may not have been true for her because it was so close in time. And she was the same grown-up sociologist on the plane. And when she got home, and I don't know this, but for all I know, she was taking notes on the plane to begin her research or not. I don't know, but that seems plausible to me. And I was doing the opposite. I was crossing out things in my diary. That's so interesting. And in fact, every social scientist I know when under stress starts taking notes. So that's, that's totally plausible, Martha. So let me ask you the last question that I ask everybody on the podcast, which is why should our listeners read this book now? In many ways, this book is about trauma and lost memory. I know the word trauma can be defined in many different ways. And in a sense, I'm purposefully using it in a colloquial sense, not a clinical sense. Lots of things can be traumatic. I feel sure that many, if not most readers, 
have had some experience, no matter how varied, with trauma and memory, wanting and not wanting to recover childhood experiences. And again, although the language may sound clinical, that's not at all how I'm using it. Thinking about myself as someone in the past turned out to be so valuable and so illuminating. And in many ways, it was a, it was a difficult journey. But I feel like that's the part of the book that speaks to readers, no matter who they are, maybe even no matter their politics, the things that happen to us as children that we carry with us, and then we grow up. And guess what? We're not children anymore. But there are things that linger that we don't always understand. And so what I did as a historian was I went into the archives. You don't have to go into the archives and do research to think about past adversity and lost memory. But I hope that some of what I conclude and some of what I discover in the book will be helpful to people who would like to maybe think about things they haven't been able to think about or haven't known how to think about in their own pasts or the pasts of people they love. It's a wonderful answer, answer Martha. And you know, I, when I wrote you, I said that after I finished the book, I wanted to embrace that little girl who was Martha. I also really want to applaud the grown-up who is Martha for her courage in writing this book. So thank you so much for offering it to us. And thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much, Claire. It was a wonderful conversation with you. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to Why Now on your favorite podcast platform. Please leave a rating and a comment so that other listeners can find us. Go to the Political Junkie Substack at clairepotter.substack.com for show notes, to listen to more episodes, or to leave a comment. You can subscribe to Political Junkie for free, or you can pay as little as $5 a month to get every podcast and every newsletter delivered straight to your desktop two times a week. Share this podcast with a friend who loves history, politics, and smart conversation. And follow me on Twitter at Tenured Radical, that's capital T, capital R, or at my website, ClarePotter.com. Why Now is supported by the New School for Social Research and by paying subscribers to Political Junkie. Why Now and Political Junkie are written, recorded, edited, and produced by me, Claire Potter. My opening theme is by Galaxy News, and my closing theme is by Avocado Junkie. That's all for now. See you next time. Mm-hmm.